are you to the point yet where you have a class that you look forward to going to? Not getting a lot of very convincing head nods. Let's try it this way. Hey, everybody who's not in school right now. Let me ask you this. Do you have a class that you would look, you will look back on and say, I really wish that I had paid more attention in there than I did? Okay. So students, look at all the adults nodding vigorously around you. It may be that that class that you don't like right now, you're going to look back on later and say, I really wish I had paid more attention in there. See, one of the things that James is doing as a pastor is he's teaching. He's teaching God's people about deep and profound truth. And though you may not know now why you need the Pythagorean theorem in your life, watch out. Or rather, for us, it may be that there are some things that James is teaching us that we haven't learned so well yet, and that this is an opportunity for us to listen. Isn't that what James talks about this morning? We should know this, that we should be quick to listen and slow to speak slow to become angry. We need to figure out why James is saying that. Let's see the text that we're looking at this morning. We continue in our series in the book of James. We're in James chapter 1. We're going to take on, um, we're going to take on verses uh, 19 through 27 this morning. I invite you to stand if you would and hear God's word. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being No hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one's self unstained from the word. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, would you remove distraction and doubt 
so that Jesus would be made great in our ears today. We don't want to simply come and pay religious lip service to saying that we're a people of the word. Make us, we pray, a people of the word. Not just hearers, but doers. For the glory of Jesus and the good of your people, we pray. Amen. So here's, here's what brought this whole classroom question to my mind. How many of you, when you were in school, took a class on conversations? A few of you did. Do you realize that having a conversation is an art form? Having a conversation is a science that two people sitting in a room together with their talking points all lined up, that's not actually a conversation. That's two people with their minds made up talking past one another. I was listening to an interview on NPR this week, um, and a woman by the name of Celeste Headley was uh, talking about a new book that she's written entitled, We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. This is based on a, uh, a TED Talk that she gave that's gotten a lot of attention because apparently we live in a society that doesn't really know how to converse with one another. Now, some of the, the points are interesting and, and, and lovely and good. Um, but one particular point that she raised in her book that especially caught my ear this week was this one. It's that we don't know how to listen. She quotes, um, she quotes that, uh, that listening is a skill, and she quotes Stephen Covey who says this, Most of us don't listen with the intent to understand. We simply listen with the intent to reply. Most of us don't listen with the intent to understand. We listen with the intent to reply. She says in her book, we like to talk. When I'm talking, I'm in control. I don't have to hear anything I'm not interested in. I'm the center of attention. I can bolster my own identity. I didn't get to take a class in communication or conversation when I was in grade school either. In fact, I really didn't even take a class like that in seminary. I had a different class. It was people looking at me, sometimes with tears in their eyes, saying, you don't actually listen to me when I talk. If you think that James is speaking proverbially here, he's just giving good advice, you need to listen. If you think that what James is saying here is completely disconnected from everything else that he said, because James is, is very quotable that way, right? Lots of statements that can stand on their own and make sense on their own. You need to listen. 
Because James is unfolding for us the argument that he's been making from the very beginning that we need a different way of seeing the world. We need a different way of understanding the world. And so to do that, we need to all go to school this morning. I'm sorry, it just needs to happen. And we need to listen to James, our pastor and teacher, as he tells us about how to be good conversationalists, but really how he tells us how to listen. There's two things that we see happening in the text. There's the planting of the word in us, and then there's the flourishing of the word through us. Last week, you'll remember that we talked very briefly at the end of the sermon about verse 18, and if you don't have it in front of you, I'll read it out loud for you. James reminds us that out of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, James said. What does the know this mean? Is he talking about what he just said? Or is he talking about what he's getting ready to say? Let me commend you with this thought. It would seem that the way that James talks, in this particular instance, James is saying, no, what I just said is true. He's not giving you uh, now a command, an imperative, if you will, to say, stop talking. But he's saying rather how you're going to know this. Don't be the talker. Be the listener. Many of us, when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to hearing God speak, when it comes to hearing God's word, um, many of us... um, never really learned how to, how to do that, right? We never really learned how to get the word of God in us and see it go down deep in us. So what I want to do this morning is cover a few defeaters or a few things that can stand in the way of, of the word of God getting in us. Some of you may be like me in that you are incredibly skeptical. And you might think that the Bible is something to be argued with, and that's fine. That actually, the Bible makes sense, uh, makes makes space for that. Uh, John, the Apostle John, records in John chapter twenty, "I have I have written all these things about Jesus that you may believe." Um, there are there are truth claims that are being made in the Bible throughout all of the pages of the sacred text that God is giving for us, knowing that we are prone to disbelief. It has been given to us so that we may believe. And so it is very possible to come at the Bible skeptically. But James's exhortation then for us is one we ought to heed that we would be slow to speak. You see, one of the things that happens in conversations when we are listening not to hear, but listening to reply, is that when someone is talking, most of the time we've got about 15 or 20 seconds of what they've said, and then we know, ah, yeah, I know where this is going. And if we're particularly pugnacious or argumentative, we might say, and I know how you're wrong. And we begin crafting and formulating in our mind how we're going to retort or rebut 
See, this is what happens when we are convinced that we have everything that we need in order to live our lives. And that's where most conversations break down. We don't feel like there's a gap in our knowledge that could be filled in by someone else other than us. It's especially dangerous, and I would even say deadly, if we go and approach God the same way. And so for those that are are skeptical, there is a good chance that you don't actually have all of the information that you need to make a decided final opinion on the matter. And James's exhortation to the skeptic and to the one who said, I don't believe, is, wait a minute, listen, consider for just a moment that you may not actually have all of the information. There's another way, too, though, that we can approach the Bible, um, and it's not a bad way, by the way. I'm not saying that any of these things are bad. I'm saying that left on their own, they're not enough. Everybody with me? It's okay to be skeptical sometimes. The second way that we can approach the Bible that can be problematic is, um, is intellectually. As a, uh, as a set of information to be, um, to be mastered, a set of facts, theorems, pro- uh, problems to be understood. And this is good too, by the way, because there are deep and profound things that are revealed to us in the scriptures that we do not get from anywhere else in the world. But the, the problem with just going at, going at it intellectually is that intellect alone doesn't typically make us angry. Like I do curse gravity sometimes, but that's only when I fall. Like I'm not mad necessarily that gravity is a thing. I'm just mad when it takes over when I fall. But James says, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. See, to, say, to have a purely intellectual approach to the Bible doesn't leave much room to get mad at the Bible. If it's just information to be synthesized and gathered, if it's just theological systems to be constructed, if it's just belief postulates that we need to understand, there's not a lot of emotion there, is there? But there's another way that that some of us, um, there's another way that some of us tend to approach the Bible, and again, it's not bad, and that is, devotionally or emotively. We, we view the, the pages of the sacred text as our, our, our inspirational quote for the day. And that's not bad, right? I mean, the Bible is incredibly moving. If you want to, if you want to understand and know and, and experience the full range, the full extent of human emotion, look at the Psalms. You experience joy and adoration and, and lament and even, even indignation, right? Calling upon God to rise up and vindicate himself as the righteous judge. But there's a limit there too, isn't there? Because when we go to the Bible to be our emotional pick-me-up, It can never confront us. It must only comfort us. 
When you go seeking out those books, and I'm sure you have one on your bookshelf or know someone who does, God's Promises for right? And it's this book of, of inspirational Bible verses. When you're angry, read this. And when you're sad, read this. And when you're depressed, read this. At that point, though, um, you're, not, you're not letting the Bible speak to you in all of the areas of your life. You're not letting it confront you. It's only there to comfort you. And that's not a bad thing. But it's not enough either. So we can deal with the Bible skeptically. We can deal with the Bible intellectually. We can deal with the Bible um, inspirationally, where it needs to be my inspiration. But that all creates some problems as we go on in the text, because James says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Um, I, I was telling Jimmy a couple of weeks ago when we started the series, and he asked me how prep was going, and I was on verse one of James. I said, well, I spent three quarters of a day on one verse, so I think it's going fine. That doesn't bode well for the rest of the preparation process, but you know, three quarters of a day on one verse, and I had another one of those days with verse 21. James is very much interested not necessarily in creating theological systems, but letting us experience and, and he processing with us life in the present. If you see what James does there, it seems to invert the order of how things should happen. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and then receive the word. What that sounds like is it sounds like James is saying, do you know what you have to do? You have to get your life together before you can come and have God's blessings pour into you. That doesn't sound like gospel. See, here's the thing. James isn't using, isn't writing this letter as an evangelistic tract. He's not writing this to people who don't already say they profess belief. He's writing it to people who say they believe. If you look back at verse 1, where I was stuck for three quarters of a day. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's not writing this evangelistically to Jews. He's writing this to Christians. He's writing this to people who are dispersed all over the world. At that point, in these early days of the expansion of Christendom, as it's going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, as the scattering of God's people is happening. James is not calling us here that we have to somehow get our act together before we go and receive the blessings of God. It's all working together in what God does and what we do. Because you have been called out, verse 18, because you have been brought forth by God, by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, therefore put away all wickedness. If you separate what James is saying in verse 21 from verse 18, you're going to find yourself putting the cart before the horse. Because that God is of his own free will, 
brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. You see, what James does here is he says there is a responsibility. There is something that you and I must do in response to the, to the given word of God. But it doesn't say it very easily. He says that we are to receive the implanted word. It doesn't believe, like the Stoics would have, that there was some sort of innate goodness, innate, um, innate justness, innate rightness in us that was lying dormant until it was suddenly awakened. James is not saying that we are innately good but just unable to see that goodness. James says that we are to receive that which has come from outside of us and been implanted in us. Because it is only that which has come from outside and gone in that will bear fruit. Don't miss that. There is that great tension with divine sovereignty and our responsibility. If you think for a moment that God just kind of comes in and does all the work for you and then you're just a robot on autopilot, you're wrong. I love you, but you're wrong. If on the other hand, you see it as um, this thing where you have to be a moral person, a religious person, a person that gets it all together, that, that collects their various and sundry inspirational quotes and feel-good ideas, and that this somehow becomes a project through which you will impress God through your goodness or through your rightness, you're wrong. I love you, but you're wrong. James says, no, what you are to do is to receive with meekness that which God has done in you and is doing to you and is working through you. There is that tension between responsibility and sovereignty that James won't let us get away from. It is not that this whole world has been set up to run uh, like one of those Rube Goldberg machines where you kick the marble going at the beginning and it just kind of follows down the track and knocks all the things down and everything else and there's nothing to stop the world and its mechanics. It's not like the guy that fell down a flight of 50 steps and gets up and says, well, glad that's over with. Nor is it this thing where God is just as caught off guard by the end as we are. There's a tension of sovereignty and responsibility, which is very much consistent with what the Bible teaches, but is not as easy to wrap our heads around as other things that the Bible teaches. Now, James is not so much um, worried about, um, let me try it this way. It's not enough to read the Bible as an intellectual set of things to, be, uh, things to be mastered. It's not enough to read the Bible as our source of inspirational quotes. James is also looking to see the Word of God change us. And it gets to the volition. It gets to what we do. 
It changes who we are. It changes how we act. And James does not mince words or pull punches. James simply says, if that's not happening, then you ought to be alarmed. If you said that you are a doer of the word, as he will unfold for us later. If you say you are a hearer of the word, show me what you're doing. Show me how it's changing your life. Show me how it's making you kinder, more compassionate, more loving. And I'm not saying that you're not going to have bad days. And I'm not saying that you're not going to, I'm not saying that you're not going to, uh, to still slip up and mess up. What I am saying is that there is going to be evidence in your life of the fruit of the Spirit bearing out its work in everything that happens in your life. Because sometimes the Bible is not going to disagree with what we want it to say. The Bible is not going to agree with what we want it to say. And he says, you need to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to be angry. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Remember what? Uh, the author that I mentioned at the beginning said, she said, when we're talking, we're in control. We don't have to hear anything that we're not interested in. We're the center of attention. We can bolster our own identity. How many of you today need to hear God's word? Not as a conversation partner, but as having the words of life that you don't have by yourself. But there's something else, too, that I don't want you to miss. In verse 21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. It is the gospel. It is the word of God getting into the hearts of the people of God that transforms us. James does not say that, that seeking, uh, that, that stopping your, uh, stopping filthiness, stopping wickedness is what saves you. He doesn't say that being less angry saves you. He doesn't say that, that, if you, that if you just master being quick to hear, that that saves you. What he says is that receiving with meekness the implanted word, that is what is able to save your souls. It is receiving Jesus. That is what does it. To read James as some sort of morality project where you are supposed to do a lot of things, and it's easy to do. Remember I said a couple weeks ago that of the 109 verses in the letter that James wrote, there are 58 commands. It's incredibly easy to read it and presume that this is just a laundry list of things that we've got to do to get our act together. But what James says here, and you can't, you can't miss it, is that receiving the word, receiving, receiving the gift of God that God himself has secured through his son, Jesus Christ, it is that which is able to save your souls. This is how change happens. The word of God takes root deep within us and transforms us. It brings conviction of sin. It brings assurance of mercy. As one Puritan said, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in me. 
So skeptics and intellectuals and devotional readers are all welcome to the word, but there's more. Not less than those things, but there's more. And that's the second part that I want to talk about, the flourishing of the word through us. The word has to change us from the inside out. James says the Bible is for us like a mirror. Look at what he says. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Now, I don't know um, for you what your own morning routine is like. But there is, um, there's a lot of time spent in front of the mirror for those of us whose hair is less thick and lush than maybe it once was in our lifetime. And so arranging particular pieces and parts just so, so that it doesn't look like a comb over but still looks stylish. And I have, a, I have an agreement with my hair person. And I've said, this is, a, this is a trust thing we've got going on here. Whenever this thing starts looking sad, you have to tell me. Like it's all getting shaved off at that point. It's just... And then Jen said, why are you entering into covenants with people and talking about shaving your head? <laughs> you actually can't pull that off. To listen to someone is to presume that there are gaps, that we need the information that they're they're going to provide. A mirror provides for us information that we don't innately have on our own. It gives us the ability to see ourselves. What James is asking us to see here is the mirror that God's word holds up to ourselves. If it holds up something that doesn't look right, what are you going to do about it? And if the Bible never holds up any type of reflection of anything wrong with you, are you going to ask why that is? There's two aspects of this, isn't there? On the one hand, there is that we see it, we do nothing about it. The other side is we never see it because we never let the Bible challenge or provoke or dethrone our own opinions about how we should and how the world should operate. To be a hearer and a doer of the word is to see what is disconnected in our life and make aims to fix it. That's what it means to connect creed, what you believe, to conduct. It means that it's more than information and it's more than emotion and it's more than inspiration. It changes us from what we do because it's changed our desires deep down. He goes on and he says in verse 25 something that we need, to, we need to hear. He says in verse 25, The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, I thought the law was bad. I thought the law condemned. And yet, 
Jesus did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And the law can't save us. So then what use is the law for us? One of the things that we need to talk about is this word freedom or liberty. For us, as products of the Enlightenment here in the West, when we see or talk about freedom or liberty, we hear a, uh, a, a loosing of chains. We hear an absence of constraint, right? That's what we hear when we hear freedom or we hear liberty. We hear it in negative senses. We hear that I was constrained, now I'm not. So for James to call the law, the perfect law of liberty, sounds very weird to our ears because law sounds like constraint and liberty is supposed to be freedom from constraint. Therefore, how is that true? Here's the thing. The law cannot save you. The debt of your sin, the debt of the... Of the, of the um, of the sin that is in your life is nothing that you can repay to God. It is nothing that you can do. You cannot keep the law perfectly. And even if you could, would you want to try? Because one misstep, that's like, okay, so there was the, the guy that did the, when the twin towers were still standing and he did the, the high rope uh, and connected the two towers and went across. You're like that guy with no safety net and no harness. One misstep and you're done. No, it's not the law that saves you. It's, it's only one who could keep the law perfectly who saves you, and that's Jesus. But think about this. The law does not only forbid, the law also enjoins. It not only tells us what not to do, but it gives us direction of what we should do. Think about it this way. The law of liberty uh, doesn't take our humanity away, but it shows us where and how our humanity was designed to flourish. Think about it. There is not going to be death in heaven. Why? Because God's character is life. There is not going to be, uh, you know, we don't kill just because it's wrong to kill. We don't kill because God's character is from life. We don't commit adultery because God is faithful. We don't steal because God is generous. He gives good gifts. We don't bear false witness because God's word is true and he keeps his promises. If God is at work in us, bearing out the fruit of his spirit through us, then it's not simply going to be a matter of staying away from all the things that the law forbids. It's going to also be moving towards the direction of all the things that the law enjoins. And this is where we find ourselves not as a people slavishly trying to obey law to keep God happy, but free to live as we were designed to live because we have the smile of God, because we have the amen of God secured for us in Jesus. 
Verses 26 and 27, I'm not going to spend time on this morning because what James is doing here is he is introducing where he's going. Over the next three chapters, in chapters 2, 3, and 4, James is going to unpack more of what it means if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. James chapter 2 is going to unpack a little bit more of how we interact with the poor and the marginalized. In chapter 3, how we handle our tongue. And in chapter 4, how we keep oneself unstained from the world. So let me ask you something. As you uh, entered into James's master class on listening today, as you entered into James's master class on listening today, where did you find yourself on the spectrum? Did you find yourself as a, as a skeptic, thinking that God's word is an, an okay conversation partner, but it can't possibly speak to everything, so you'll handle your stuff and God will handle his stuff? Or maybe you found yourself as one who only approaches the Bible through an intellectual lens of one who is simply trying to grab information because it's interesting or because it's, it's, it's a project for you. Or, or maybe you found yourself this morning as one who just reads the Bible uh, devotionally and always looks for it to inspire you but never allows it to confront you. Or maybe, maybe, you found yourself just confronted all too much and you feel stuck and you don't know what to do next. The good news for us is the one who was the one who obeyed the word is the one who gave his life for us. Jesus listened to his father, not with an argument or a retort or a reply on his lips, but obedience in his actions. He heard his father's heart for his people. He looked into the perfect law of liberty and upheld every last bit of it. And he did it all so that the salvation that he would give us would not be one that would say, now match my record, but rather now receive my record. The law of liberty is not a pathway towards salvation, but rather the pathway of the saved. So maybe today you have been the one who's been very quick to speak and very slow to listen. And you get offended with God. I have good news for you today. It's actually far worse for you than that. But the good news of the grace of the gospel is that you, a mess and all, are welcome because there's far more grace in Jesus than there is sin or rebellion in you. And so as God, comfort, as God confronts you, he doesn't confront you to crush you. He confronts you in order to see you conformed into the image of the son whom he loves. So that there would be the fruit of heaven outworking in your life. So that the first fruits of redemption that James said are ours on display for a watching and waiting world would be on full glorious display. What have you seen reflected in yourself today through the word of God? What are you going to do today to not forget the reflection of, that you saw 
both in what you see in yourself and who you see in Jesus.